Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. In, uh, in recent years, statistics tell us that uh, people die at a rate of three per second. That, uh, if you do the math, it's about 180 per minute and about 11,000 per hour. And that ends up being 95 million per year. And if Scripture, if I understand Scripture right, How many know Christ told us in Matthew 7.13 that broad is the way that leadeth to what? Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. But then narrow is the gate that leads to life. And of the 95 million per year, pass away according to scripture those that have not surrendered their life to Jesus they're going to end up in experiencing one of two destinies and if they've not surrendered to Christ how many know the Bible speaks of a place called hell and Many are on the road to hell, but don't realize it. Now, how many know that is tragic? And really, when you think about the afterlife, when you think especially about hell, the whole topic, the whole truth of hell has fallen on hard times in our culture. According to one survey, 75% of people living in America, they believe in hell. They believe there is a hell. And how many know that belief, we can say thanks to Christianity, right? So, if 75% believe there's a hell, you, you prod a little further and you find that another study showed that of those 75% that do believe in hell, only 4%, 4% believe there's any chance that they would go there or that people go there. Oh, yeah, there's a hell. That's where the devil is. That's where demons are. People like Hitler. Right? So in one sense, we've got our point across. There is a hell. But we haven't got the point across that a lot of people, a lot of people can actually go there. That's the issue. And so 
the possibility of going there after our lives on this earth has really evaporated in our culture, in our present generation. And unfortunately, you know where we can lay that blame? Sad to say, behind the pulpit, right? The pulpit and the press have not helped. For example, when's the last time, when's the last time you heard uh, a sermon on hell, much less a series, right? Are y'all out there? So what we're looking at in this series is we're going to we're going to look at heaven and hell, but we're going to deal with hell first because I think we cannot understand the glories of heaven until we understand the torment of hell. So the first part of this series, we're going to look at what scripture says about hell and and as I said, the pulpit and the press have not helped in getting the message across. You know, even the, and I say press, I'm talking even the Christian book publishers. That industry has basically ignored the truth of hell. I have in my library an I believe it's about an 800 page book it's called the bible almanac and uh, i looked for it a while ago and run out of time uh, but it's in my library somewhere but a while back i i, I learned that out of its 800 pages you know, it only has eight lines in it. Eight lines. Little paragraph. On the topic of hell. It's amazing. There's a handbook of contemporary theology. It's 396 pages. It was published in uh, 2001. And it did not even include the topic of hell supposed to be a theology book so how many would agree hell has become the forgotten doctrine of the Christian church and many Christians have been squeezed into the mold of our postmodern American culture to them the topic of hell feels out of touch right talking, of, talking about hell almost feels like you're pro-slavery or something. Favor of racism or something. I mean, it just doesn't fit into modern culture. No matter what folks feel is the truth about hell, in this, in this study, I want us to discover what the Bible says about hell, and then we're going to discover what the Bible says about heaven. And the most obvious biblical fact is get this, Jesus believed in hell. Right? If you read the four Gospels, 
you're going to discover he spoke about hell more, didn't he? Than he did about heaven. And most of what we know about hell comes from the words of our Lord. So I want you to turn Luke chapter 16, and we're going to start at verse 19. We're going to read this story, and then we're going to spend some time unpacking it, all right, at some point this evening. Let's stand together. How many has got, uh, if you brought your Bibles... These words we're going to read, all these verses are in red, right? What's that mean? That's the words of Christ, absolutely. All right, notice what he says, verse uh, 19. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed, with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came, licked his sores, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And notice this, in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted. And thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he saith, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, this story which we have shared together from this powerful book of Luke. Pray that you would touch our minds, our ears to hear and hearts to receive. And Lord, we're going to trust you to minister to us. Grow our faith. Lord, we're going to trust you and believe you as we reach out to our family, as we, as we see the torments of hell, may we be persuaded to pray harder for our lost loved ones and friends 
so that they can escape this place called hell. In Jesus' name, all God's children say amen. Amen. Lord bless you. You can be seated. So, when we read the four Gospels, we discover that Christ spoke about hell more than heaven. Then we have the fact that the apostles, all of them, believed in hell. The Christian church has always believed in hell. This is one of the rare points on which Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, Evangelicals, they're usually in a general agreement. Uh, of course, now you've got the very liberal uh, segments of them that have obviously um, ignored hell. So for 2,000 years, though, Christians have, you, have united in saying that those who uh, pass from this life that have rejected Christ will spend eternity uh, in hell. Now, some groups have added certain doctrines, such as purgatory, such as soul sleep. Uh, but the basic truth remains that the Christian church has always believed in hell. Now, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, notice on your study guide, offers our best and clearest picture of the nature of hell. Okay, And because those words come from the Son of God, when you read this passage, how many know he is speaking with divine authority? Right? That means, what's that mean, Pastor? It means what he says can be trusted. Trusted. Now, I realize that some people refer to this story as a parable. They say it's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, I have no objection to that as long as calling it a parable doesn't become an excuse for ignoring what it says. I'm not sure it really is a parable because Christ did not call it a parable. He said in verse 19, there was a certain rich man. So, if it's a parable, it's the only parable in which an actual name of a person is used, Lazarus. And in the other parables, you don't find their names. So it reads more like a genuine report of life after death. How many would agree? That's the way I think we should read it, okay? All right, so... We're going to come back to this story, but I need us first to get a little foundation. Uh, and so I want to start with a brief history of hell as found in the scripture. Okay, so that, let's go now in your outline to Roman numeral one, a brief history of hell. Because when we examine scripture to learn about hell we discover that hell is not something that's given to us fully disclosed in the book of Genesis right not even Exodus not even the first five books of the Bible but yet over time everybody say over time God reveals more and more and more about what happens to people after they die now, the best way to learn the history of hell is to follow the various words, the various words used in Scripture to describe it. We're going to start in the Old Testament, okay, which is the least descriptive 
Then we're going to work our way to the New Testament, which is the most descriptive. Okay? So, let's start with letter A. Sheol. Now, afterlife in the Old Testament is known as Sheol. Now, the most important word to describe life after death in the Old Testament is this Hebrew word, which is found 65 times, okay, in the Old Testament. Now, here's, here's kind of what complicates things. Unfortunately, uh, our King James Version, and I'm a KJV fella, uh, it didn't translate the Hebrew word show into English consistently. And what I mean by that is it'll, it'll, for 31 times it translated it as hell. For another 31 times it translated it as grave. Okay? Two times it translated uh, Sheol as the pit. Okay? So you've got hell, you've got grave, you've got pit as Sheol when it came over into the English language. So we got to ask, then what is this Hebrew word? Sheol. So in the Old Testament, it was described as a place where everyone who died continued to have a conscious existence after their physical existence. There's no easy way to translate that Hebrew word into English, which is why the old King James translated in Three different ways, okay? But we do know it was the place for the righteous dead. It was also the place for the wicked dead in the Old Testament, okay? The Old Testament gives us a few hints that everyone in Sheol did not have the same experience of life after death in that place, while we don't have time to examine all the texts, there are hints scattered throughout the Old Testament that Sheol was divided into two, everybody say two, two compartments, okay? One for the righteous dead and one for the wicked dead. How many's following me so far? Okay. Let's look at verses, uh, well... Uh, verse, for example, Psalm uh, forty-nine, fifteen, gave hope to those walking with God who died in the Old Testament and went to Sheol. Psalm forty-nine, fifteen. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. And there, in Psalm forty-nine, fifteen, the English reads "grave." Okay, but in the Hebrew, it's Sheol. So God spoke other times through his prophets that one day he would pay a price. Somebody say, redemption. He would pay a price to take the souls of the righteous dead out of where? Sheol. Okay? And so in the Old Testament, there was little information given. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little information given about life after death. So the main points about life after death in the Old Testament is number one, people continue to live a conscious existence after death in a place called Sheol. In other words, their soul. Okay? 
Second, we find in the Old Testament, there are two compartments to show. One was a place of comfort. The other was a place of suffering. Okay? Third, what we've learned is God would one day pay a price to take the righteous dead out of show. So while the Old Testament only opens the door on this subject of life after death, it just opens the door a little crack, so to speak. The New Testament throws the door wide open and fills in the details on life after death that the Old Testament saints were missing. All right, so that takes us to letter B on your study guide. Hades. Now, how many's heard that word? Okay. So we've got Hades, which is the afterlife in the New Testament. So while Sheol was the key word to understand life after death in the Old Testament, Hades is the key word to understand life after death in the New Testament. So in New Testament times, since everyone spoke Koine Greek and most couldn't even read Hebrew, Okay, after the Romans took over, okay, there was just pockets of, of Orthodox Jews that would speak Hebrew in home. Most everybody spoke Koine Greek. They, so, because of that, they wrote a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that everyone could read and You've heard about it. It's called the Septuagint. Okay? In every location that the Hebrew word Sheol was used in the Hebrew Old Testament, in the Greek Septuagint, they've translated into the word Hades. So, from that, what do you say? From that, we understand that the Hebrew word Sheol and the Greek word Hades mean the same thing, right? That means the Greek word Hades in the New Testament is referring to the same place called Sheol in the Old Testament. Okay, I'm trying to keep it simple. Some various English Bible translations obscure this a bit. They translate the Greek word Hades with the English word hell. Now we're going to get to the topic of hell. But not at the moment. Because. As they translated it. Hades as the English word hell. It's not completely. Correct. In New Testament times. Although it has come to mean that more so now. Hell would eventually refer to the suffering side. Remember there's. Two compartments, okay? So hell would eventually refer to the suffering side of Hades or the suffering side of Sheol, okay? So we got to remember that Sheol in Hebrew and Hades in Greek are referring to the same place, the temporary resting place for the dead where everyone existed while waiting for their final, final judgment and resurrection. So... 
it wasn't until the 400 years between the time of the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament that the Jews really developed the more mature understanding of Sheol or also called Hades. They realized this temporary place of the dead was divided into two sections, one where the wicked were in torment until final judgment, the other section was of comfort where those who were right with the Lord lived or in a conscious state, that is, in consolation and comfort until uh, their time of final judgment. So notice on your study guide, the half of Hades that was a place of comfort for the righteous was also called, in our text, Abraham's what? Bosom. Also became known as paradise. So the half of Sheol or Hades that was a place of agony was simply called Hades. Okay? And became known as hell. The two compartment background of Hades, one being a place of suffering, the other place uh, of comfort, was the background for this text that we just shared. The story that Christ told regarding the rich man and Lazarus here in Luke chapter 16. And as we read this chapter, the rich men died, went to Hades, okay? And which side did he go? To the suffering side, okay? So out of the two compartments, he's on the suffering side, which was reserved for the unbeliever, right? Okay? We learn in this passage that the dead are still alive in a state of soul consciousness in eternity. Both Lazarus and the rich man, <laughs> in a sense, survived their own funerals. In a sense. Why? Because the soul of man never dies. Right? So notice how the dead retain their personalities. They retain their essential character. Lazarus is still Lazarus. The rich man is still the rich man. Even in Hades, the rich man could see, hear, feel, recognize, remember, speak, reflect, plead, suffer, and even think ahead. Right? There was only one thing he couldn't do. He couldn't get out of that suffering compartment. Right? No escape. So death, we find from this, right, that this, uh, these words of Christ, death marks the final separation between the saved and the lost. Okay? Once in heaven, always in heaven. But once in hell, always in hell. No one can pass from heaven to hell or from hell to heaven. From the suffering side of Hades, he could look over, the rich man could look over and see the beggar. Okay? 
Lazarus on the other side of Hades in the comfort compartment. Also called paradise or Abraham's bosom. And what was between the two compartments? From the text. Anybody remember? That's right. A great gulf or a gap that separated the two compartments. In the belief that Sheol, or also called Hades, was divided into two compartments, a place of torment, a place of comfort, was the prevailing belief in, among the Jews in Christ's day. And notice, Christ affirms that in this, in this I started to say parable, in this story. And so we know the Old Testament prophesied that not all people in Sheol, or Hades, would stay there. Not, not at that time, because God would one day ransom the souls of the faithful dead and take them to heaven, okay? So when Christ rose from the dead, anybody remember what exactly he did? According to Matthew twelve forty, he goes into the lower parts of the earth, right? The heart of the earth. That is Sheol, Hades. And he's there for three days and three nights while his body is in the grave. Now, he went into Sheol or he went into Hades, but he went to the comfort side. Follow me? Okay? Not the suffering side while his body was in the grave. Okay, and in Luke 23, 42, 43, Christ, Christ acknowledges this belief of paradise because he tells the repentant thief on the cross, he, what did he say? This day you will be with me. Where? In paradise. Does this make sense? However, after Christ rose from the dead, and he ascends to the Father. You remember the text says that after he rose and actually before he ascended, there were Old Testament saints walking the streets of Jerusalem. Well, God kept his word. God said he would redeem them Take them out of even the comfort side of Sheol or Hades, okay? And so when Christ rose from the dead, Ephesians 4, 8 says, He led captivity captive, okay? That paradise compartment or all the inhabitants of it were then relocated. How many is following me? To heaven. And that's confirmed to us by the Apostle Paul who speaks of a man, he says, who was caught up, caught up into paradise, or the third heaven is the same thing, where he hears unspeakable things. Not, he didn't go down. He goes up. So then in 2 Corinthians 12, 3 and 4, we have the testimony of Paul. So Christ, we know, 
takes the Old Testament saints that were in the paradise compartment of Sheol and Hades. He takes them to heaven. The Apostle Paul told us that after Christ's resurrection, every Christian who dies no longer goes to paradise or, or Sheol or Hades, even the comfort site. They go directly where? To heaven. They go to the presence of the Lord. Philippians 1.23, for I am, Paul says, I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. He knew that if he was going to pass from this life, he was going to be with Christ. Today, when believers die, they go directly to heaven. The other side of Sheol or Hades is still occupied by the wicked and is, is the suffering side now that is today, we basically refer to it in our language as hell. There the unrepentant dead await and torment the final judgment while the Old Testament saints and New Testament believers uh, are already in heaven with Christ. So that brings us to our next word. Notice on your study guide, letter C, Gehenna. So now this, we've got the Old Testament picture of hell called Sheol. We've got the New Testament term for hell called Hades. Now let's look at Christ's portrait of hell. He calls it Gehenna. What do we know about Gehenna? In 750 B.C., King Ahaz, you read about him in the Old Testament, he ruled Judah. Ahaz was a spineless, pathetic, cowardly idolater. Okay? He adopted some of the most revolting forms of idol worship ever known in existence. He burned his own children alive on the altars to Molech and several other foreign gods. He did this in a place called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, which was just southwest of the city of Jerusalem. After some time, God judged King Ahaz for his sin and dethroned him. He was followed by his son Hezekiah, who was a good king. Unfortunately, though, Hezekiah didn't reign for a real long time. And his son Manasseh ruled after his daddy Hezekiah. And Manasseh was just as evil as his grandfather Ahaz. Did you follow that? And so Manasseh, the scripture says, he burned his children alive on the altars to foreign gods there in the same valley, the Valley of Hinnom. So the Valley of Hinnom in Israel became forever associated with pagan worship and repulsive human sacrifice false gods and obviously people couldn't just forget the atrocities and the idol worship the paganistic practices there and eventually in time after Manasseh a godly king by the name of Josiah comes along remember reading about him 
man, he abolishes idol worship and, and turns that entire valley, that location where all of that took place, he turned it into a garbage dump. It not only became the city garbage dump, but it was also the place where the corpse of a dead animal, dead criminals, they were thrown there to rot. This place stunk, the Valley of Hinnom stunk of rotting flesh. There was constant fires burning the garbage. And so the people then nicknamed the valley Gehenna, which is a shortened version of Valley of Hinnom. And then Gehenna means place of misery. So Gehenna is used 12 times in the New Testament to describe the fires of hell. 11 of the 12 times it is used was on the lips of our Lord. And when Christ wanted to describe what the final resting place of the wicked was like, he pointed southwest, out of town, to the garbage dump that constantly was burning and was smoking and the smell of rotting flesh. And he says to his people during that time, he says, going to hell would be like spending eternity in Gehenna. He was implying that hell was a place where the fires never die. The worms, he said, never die. The worms that eat the decomposing bodies never cease. And so he used the place Gehenna to describe hell because it was the most vivid and horrific description of the final resting place of the wicked that people in his day could understand. Does that make sense? Now let's take another step, letter D. In the book of Revelation, we hear the, the phrase, lake of fire. That is actually what you would call hell proper. So when we come to Paul, when we come to John, when we come to Christ himself, we find the final place of, the re of rest for the wicked after they are taken out of the compartment of torment in Hades and Sheol, judged by Christ, is then the lake of fire. Gehenna was simply an earthly description of the eternal reality of the lake of fire known as hell. Now, I want us to see what the Bible says about what goes on there. Because Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the what? Lake of fire. So hell is the final resting place, if you want to call it resting place. They're not doing any resting. Okay? But hell is the final destiny of everyone who has not trusted Christ. So let me summarize what we've covered so far. In the Old Testament, okay, let's recap. Everyone who died went to Sheol, or what is known in the New Testament as Hades. Sheol, or Hades, has how many compartments? Two. One was a place of suffering. The other was a place of 
comfort called paradise or Abraham's bosom. After Christ rose from the dead, he took the Old Testament saints that was on the comfort or paradise compartment and took them to heaven with him. Today, all who die trusting the Lord is also directly gone to heaven. All who have never or uh, accepted Christ, those in the Old Testament, those that have been born and refused Christ after Christ came in the flesh, they're still sent to that torment compartment of Sheol or Hades or what we call today hell. But that's not the lake of fire yet. Sure, there is fire, but what we find in Revelation is at the end of time, there are, it says that Hades is going to be cast into the lake of fire. Remember reading that? So, so after eternal judgment of Christ, they will then be confined or sent to the lake of fire. Now, I want us to notice uh, where are we at? Roman numeral two. Some biblical descriptions of hell. First of all, we know that hell from Scripture is a place of just punishment. How many know God is a just God? He does all things well. And in Matthew 25, 41 through 46, we have Christ's parable. Now, this one's a parable. It's a parable of the sheep and the goats. I may remember that. It describes what will happen at the final judgment to those who die without the Lord. And in this parable, people's destinies are linked. If you read Matthew 25, 41 through 46, people's destinies are linked to one thing, and that is their relationship with Christ. Their relationships to Christ are revealed in this parable by the way they treat other people. Especially the way they treat people in need. And this parable is talking about the final judgment. Christ himself will be the judge. And those who die apart from him after that final judgment then go into the lake of fire. That was originally, and that's what this text says, originally it was prepared as punishment for who? Satan and his angels. Hell was never originally intended for people, right? Every human being, though, that joined in Satan's rebellion against God with their sin. There's no third place. There's no third destiny. It's either heaven or hell. And it's a place of just punishment because, and, and we just finished up 2 Thessalonians. If you recall in first, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, around verse six, is, 6 and 9, Paul comforts the believers there because they had been suffering for their faith. 
And Paul reminds them that their persecutors were not going to get away with it. Remember that? Paul reminded them, nobody gets away with persecuting God's children. Those who were torturing them, he said, would one day face Christ the judge who would bring justice. And part of that justice is Christ is going to inflict vengeance upon them for their sinful actions. Now, God will not just inflict just punishment on those who are torturing and killing Christians. He will not just inflict just punishment on mass murderers in this world. But how many know it's on everyone who does not embrace and obey the truth? Okay, all who have not responded to the news of the gospel, and how many know it's good news, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. So, so it's a place of just punishment. B, letter B on your study guide, hell is eternal. While we're here in this passage, notice that twice the punishment of the lake of fire is described as uh, the word is everlasting, okay? The same word for everlasting is used to describe eternal life of the believer and eternal punishment for the sinner. So if the punishment is not eternal, then our lives in heaven would not be eternal either, right? And Revelation chapter 20, 10 through 15, gives us a clear description of, of hell. And first we see that the beast and the false prophet says they will be thrown into the what? Lake of fire, which is the place where they will be tormented day and night. And it says forever. Okay? And we also see there's a day of final judgment where everyone will stand before Christ and will be judged by what's written in the books. And all of those who have trusted in Christ have their names written in the book of life. Scripture also tells us that that everyone's deeds are written down, and in, 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 in it actually refer, refers to multiple books. And, and this book of our deeds enables Christ. He's going to no doubt refer to it as he judges everyone. And he makes sure, hey, Christ is going to be a fair judge. And he knows, and notice, he's been taking notes. Somebody say, you know, I think I might try to have my own YouTube channel. You already got yours. We all have our own YouTube channel in heaven, right? We're all being recorded, right? And all of our deeds are being recorded by God in a book so that everyone can be judged perfectly and fairly. And notice, death and Hades will give up their dead. That's what you find in the book of Revelation. So Sheol and Hades will give up their dead. The souls of people that are there will come out. And the bodies of people that are dead in the grave will rise to life and be reunited with their souls. Everyone will be given indestructible bodies. Okay? Those who are in the book of life... We'll live forever with Christ in the new heavens and new earth. Oh, what a day that's going to be. Praise God. 
those whose names are not in the book of life will be living forever in their indestructible bodies in the lake of fire. That's not my words. That's our Lord's words. And, and the problem with an indestructible body is it lasts forever. Right? Justice will ultimately be done by God and the punishment for crime of sins will be perfectly suited for the sinner. And one thing is clear. All who die apart from Christ will pay for their sins eternally in hell. Suffering continues not just for 10 years, although that's a long time to suffer. Not just for 50, but for eternity. And how many know there's, a, there's been a resurgence of a teaching called annihilationism. Where they believe they're starting, well they've been teaching it. But they teach, oh you know, God's going to let you spend so, amount, so many years in hell. But love is going to win in the end. And he's going to burn the sin out of you after so long. And then the fires of hell will go out and you will eventually go to heaven. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> it's just, you have to do a lot of twisting to get that. And, and actually, next week we're going to dive a little bit more into that. Because next week we're going to talk about why. Why do we need the doctrine of hell? We're going to talk about five or six points as to why we need that. But now in Mark chapter 9, 43 through 48, Christ talks about hell being eternal, involving never-ending punishment. And he uses the words unquenchable fire. Unquenchable. Now, Somebody in here tell me, what does unquenchable mean? Unstoppable. Somebody said it. Christ points to those who go to hell as finding no relief. It's eternal. Everybody say eternal. Because in Christ's parable of the sheep and the goats, he says it's going to be everlasting fire. Because today we, we you know, you have a little fire in the backyard, you know. After a while, it goes out. Today, we think of destruction being once and then done. But Paul described hell as the process of eternally being destroyed. We can't even process that. Eternally being destroyed? But see, the mere thought of that should remind us of how serious sin is to God. Right? Revelation uh, 14, 11 describes all the worshipers of the beast in Revelation ends up in the lake of fire where it says, notice this, the smoke of their torment goes up for the first week. No. Forever and ever. And it says, they rest not day nor night. Now, Jude, our Lord's brother, in verse 7 says this. 
even, and he's, look what he's doing. He's going to pull out an illustration here. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh. It says, he says, I'm going to use this as an illustration. He says, are set forth for an example, and notice this phrase, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, how could Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of people being punished in eternal fire? Because, I mean, the Sodom and Gomorrah incident was all the way back in Genesis chapter 19 when we read of God raining down fire and, and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. That was more than a thousand years before Jude wrote his epistle. But here's what I found out. History says that smoke from the volcanic activity in the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah was still rising in the first century. More than a thousand years after the book of Genesis was written and God had destroyed... What a great illustration of an eternity in the lake of fire where the volcanic fires or volcanic fires in Sodom and Gomorrah were still burning more than a thousand years after the city was destroyed. It's unbelievable. The Bible is very clear. You don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. Hello. And you say, wow. Last letter, where are we on? C? So hell is then indescribable pain. So the Bible describes the pain as, as agony. It uses pictures. It uses word pictures, I guess I should say. We use word pictures to help us communicate when words can't adequately describe something, or at least when we feel we're not adequately describing it. Matthew 13, 41 through 42 uses the phrase that in, in hell there's going to be Wailing and gnashing of teeth. That is a common biblical description used many times throughout the Gospels as uh, describing the agonies of hell. And some have substituted weeping for wailing. But really, if you look in the Greek, it's not a strong enough word because uh, weeping just sounds like you're sobbing because your favorite sports team lost a game, right? But the Greek word for wailing means screaming, crying out in utter agony. Gnashing of teeth means being in so much pain that you, you're grinding your teeth. Hell will be torment without any Novocaine. I don't know about you, but I had to have some skin tags removed. And so my, my uh, physician would uh, deaden the area and then remove the skin tag and then treat it with silver nitrate. And one that he removed right here, he forgot to deaden. 
11 removed once and uh, he forgot to deaden that one and so when he hit it with that silver nitrate I about come off the doctors what do they call those kind of tables and he, he immediately knew oh I'm so sorry because that silver nitrate on just a tiny little wound felt like a hot coal and I thought to myself oh if one little area of skin is that painful think about being confined to a lake of fire I said oh God I don't want to go to hell right Sister Jones you can come we need to conclude here wow it's 8.30. I've went into overtime. Let's conclude. So three times in our text, in this, in this story, Christ mentions the torment, the suffering, and the agony of the rich man. He prays for help that does not come. None of the rich man's prayers were answered, were they? Nor could they be. I think a, a sermon from this text could be entitled, What People Know in Hell. Because consider what this rich man knew. Number one, he knew there was no way out for him. Secondly, he knew his brothers could avoid hell if they repented. Thirdly, he knew that someone needed to warn them about the danger they were in. And here is a case where a man in hell has more evangelistic fervor than a lot of Christians do on earth, right? And so you say, as we stand together, you say, Pastor, what do we do with this, what we've heard tonight? For these first couple sessions, when we're, we're getting a better understanding of the biblical doctrine of hell, our application is going to be the same. And that is simply this. We've got to tell people about Jesus. If we have to, we've got to beg them to turn to Jesus. Why? Because hell is real. Hell is eternal. Eternity is a long time. And when someone is headed, when someone's headed for disaster, we're not worrying about offending them. We're worrying about saving them. So that's what we should do this week. Let's talk about Christ. Start with how he saved us. How many has been saved? You start by saying how much he means to you. And every opportunity he opens for you this week, you share his name. Why? Because Jude says, whatever you got to do, snatch them from the flyers. Pull them from the... Huh? They're already teetering on the edges of eternity. May God help us to reach them. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for such a serious doctrine tonight that we have revisited. I pray that it finds lodging in our hearts 
And God becomes a motivation for us to do all we can to reach out to family and friends and direct them to Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you for this time together, Father. Minister to each of our lives. If there's one here tonight under the sound of my voice that is not trusting you fully, completely, with 100% surrender, Father, I pray that they would, before they leave this place, put Christ on the throne of their heart. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. So that he would make a difference in their lives and they could rejoice and be redeemed. Thank you, Lord, that we have a reservation in heaven. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. Somebody celebrate that. Thank you, Jesus, for heaven. We're going to be studying about it later, but Lord, thank you that we don't have to go to hell. In Jesus' name, all God's people say amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Are you singing, Sister Jones? Amazing grace. Oh, how amazing. Thank you, Jesus. That say a wretch like me. Oh, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind. Altars are always open. Conclusion of our services here at Broadway. You're welcome to find a place to pray. If you got to go, God bless you. Be back Sunday. Invite somebody. Share the gospel with somebody. Let the Lord use you this week. God bless you. Thank you for being here. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Oh, I was blind. 